Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. And as it's curious about the books, it's also curious about the people who commission, edit, market and sell those books. This week, we have the director's cut of an interview with Caroline Priday, who's Global Promotions Director for Princeton University Press and head of their European office in Woodstock near Oxford. Extracts from this interview featured in the podcast marking the European Office's 20th birthday recently, and longer interviews with other participants in that programme will appear over the next few months, including an extensive interview with the press's director, Christy Henry. But back to Caroline. She started her publishing career in 1979 as a secretary to two academic marketing managers at Oxford University Press. There followed a 15-year stint at Elsevier, and two years working for a book distributor in Singapore. And then, about 14 years ago, she was back in the UK and living in Woodstock when she heard about an opening at Princeton University Press. I thought, oh, I could do that, and it's only three minutes' walk from home. So here I am. (laughs) And you you can't really turn down a commute like that, can you? You're you're still living in Woodstock. I am still living in Woodstock, yes. My commute has got shorter since we moved to this office probably 10 years ago. So, um, yes, I don't even have to cross the main road now. So I'm very, very spoiled. So tell me what you, what you were brought on board to do and, and indeed what the office was, was doing back in those days. OK, so the office was, I mean, the office was originally set up 20 years ago and it was set up really to expand the European author base for Princeton as part of their sort of remit to be a global publisher and also to expand the publicity for those authors that we had sort of in North America. Because, I mean, back in those days, there was much more of selling rights across the Atlantic and that sort of thing. And we would do books in North America and sell rights into Europe. And so it was really trying to sort of move away from that model and offer, you know, authors, you know, say that we could publish them globally. So that was really where we where we came to and what we started about and I came in I was came in as publicity manager very much to carry on the work of uh, Louise Corliss who was one of the first people setting up the company and so my remit was really just to continue to expand the the European coverage 
And do you remember what kind of things you were doing back in the, those days? Because I was thinking, 20 years, publishing has changed quite a lot and the ways we communicate oh, with yeah. readers and with, you know, all, all sorts of means of dissemination. So although it's not the dark ages, even 14 years ago, things were a bit different. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, very much then you would send, you sent books out to the book review pages. I mean, it was still that sort of traditional model and kind of hope that someone would, would pick them up. I think that has very has has changed dramatically now. Um, the book review pages have declined, and we are now much more looking for off the book page coverage. We'll send things to columnists and that sort of thing. And I'm also doing a lot more event coverage. And there are so many more book festivals, so we're putting authors forward to to those. So the author has to work a lot harder now than I think they did you know, 14 years ago and certainly back the original 20 years ago when we when we started here. I was looking at your website last night and you are good at what we could maybe call author education in terms of making it clear what the publisher can do, what you hope the author will be able to do, ways in which you can, you know, sort of work together most fruitfully as opposed to the old model, which, as you were saying, you know, the author delivers the book and then it's up to you to get review coverage in, in broadsheet newspapers. But trying to sort of bring the author along and explain how, how, how things have changed, perhaps. Yes, we very much, we do that. We set up calls with, you know, the key, you know, the key trade authors at the beginning of every season. So we're very clear about what we want to do with them and, and what we expect from them. And we've even started sort of little mini video presentations with some authors where who, whose book may be less easy to grasp immediately. So we get them to give us their, their sort of elevator pitch, which is all very good training for them because you're absolutely right. A lot of academics are not necessarily used to... Um, their three minutes of fame and uh, getting their ideas across in that very short time. So that's something we really work with them on and we get them to do us talking points and all sorts of things like that, really to um, to make sure that they can under, you know, get their arguments across in a, in a short time. So I, I t- you know, use the example of the Today programme, who'll give you five minutes if you're lucky and, and you know, you really need to to focus on getting those ideas across. I mean, to do those sorts of things with authors also allows us to get a sense of how good they're going to be at that because we have had some who've given us a video presentation and 40 minutes later, we've, we're still on their elevator pitch. So you then get a sense of, okay, maybe they're not going to work for that, but then you can pitch them for in-conversation type events and things like that. So it gives you a lot to work on and, and to understand what sort of events they're going to work best at. So they get the elevator pitch, but it's a very long, it's a, it's a stuck elevator. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you want, you want to get them to sort of sharpen up the message. What are, what are the things, what are the sort of baseline expectations do you try to get across to authors these days that are, that are different from the olden days? Well, I, I think you explain to them really how, how few book review, straight book review pages there are these days. And I think an, you know, there are a lot of authors who really see the review as the key pinnacle, if you like. And I think that we're trying to explain to them that actually a mention in a key columnist, even a tweet by, you know, someone, um, those sorts of things can be just as important and equally valuable in terms of selling the book. So I think we try to steer them away from 
well, if my book's reviewed in the London Review of Books or the TLS, you know, I'll have, I'll have hit the big time and, and try to sort of move them back and say, well, actually, you know, we had, I mean, wonderful example of this is that Bill Gates wrote um, a column about one of our books just as the paperback came out. And we, and rarely for a university press, we almost had to hit the presses before the uh, the book was, the first printing was in the warehouse. So, I mean, things things like that can just make a, a huge difference. And I think that's something that we really try hard to get across to, to authors. And when an author says, as they sometimes do, oh, I don't do social media, does your heart sink? Not so much, because we can, I think not all of them do, it very much depends on their age and that sort of thing. We can work with them, We, I mean, we have our own social media accounts, so we can use our own accounts to promote them and, and work with them in, in other ways. Uh, I think there's no point in trying to put an author onto social media and just get him to him or her to build something up just for their book because if they can't sustain it there's no point I mean we've had authors asking us about blogging and things like that and we're just saying look if you're not doing all of this already there's absolutely no point in in trying to do it now we'll work with what we've got and we can pitch you for other things and we'll use our social media to to highlight you you and your presence and and that sort of thing we often encourage them to work with their university communications team too who may help with a bit of media training and also start doing some social media on on their behalf. I mean, the, the, the plus side really is it's become much more possible for authors and publishers to communicate with potential readers direct. So it has made a lot more work and it's made things more diffuse, but it's, it's created opportunities. I mean, do you, do you feel positive about the direction in which things have gone from the, the, the time of the, the broadsheets? Oh, yes. I mean, a- a- absolutely, because I think the sort of wider outreach can mean that you've got all sorts of different gives you lots of different opportunities it's a lot harder work but um you know it does mean that sort of one bad review doesn't necessarily sink a book because there are lots of other things going out there and you're getting straight to the people who are really interested in it and you know you could find and i think some broadsheets still do do that they'll pick someone who is deliberately almost going to tear a book apart that's a real shame and if you if that's all you've got to work with then that really can kill something whereas now if we can get things out there in lots of different ways and go straight to people who are really interested in an idea then um that that makes a big that makes a big difference so you started here 14 years ago i was checking last night and it was 10 years ago the last time i visited princeton's offices so the old offices how have things changed in those 10 years not necessarily talking about the publicity landscape but princeton as a as a company I mean, you've got bigger that's that's clear and you've taken taken on a much more ambitious remit i guess Yes, I mean we. Yes, we've 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 got bigger. I mean we've expanded the editorial team, so we really are commissioning across the sort of areas that we work on in in the Princeton office. We've got the international rights team here, so that's made a huge difference. Our, our rights turnover has you know grown enormously. I think we've got. I I'd say we've perhaps got more professional. Um, I'll probably be <laughs> told off for saying that. But I mean, our catalogues have taken on a whole different look. I mean, when I joined, they were very sort of American University Press, black and white, that sort of thing. And they now, you know, colour and you, you really feel like you're going out with a, a, something to be to be proud of. So I think that uh, that has changed um, enormously. 
And I think also we've just we feel much more global. I mean, we're we're on um, Zoom conference calls with the US office all, all the time. We feel much, much more connected. I think when I first joined, you were doing all meetings on a phone. There was me and one other and we used to, it was quite strange doing meetings on the phone. So we used to keep a bottle of sherry, which we'd get out for doing meetings on the phone. But, you know, now that it just makes a huge difference. To, you just feel more connected. I think that makes that makes a big difference. And, and that's one thing that's really changed since since I've been here. If I said, is it easy to encapsulate what your parent institution's expectations of you are? How would you sort of respond to that? Um, gosh, that's a hard one. I think their expectations are, I mean, media, when I first joined, they're very much the, the sort of publicity. That was that was a very strong thing. Getting the, the European publicity, that makes an enormous, they get very, really excited about that. And authors get really excited about seeing coverage outside of the UK and, and sort of all around around Europe. I think that's very important. And I think it's the bringing the sort of diversity of scholarship from different areas and, and around Europe. That, I think, is very much something that they want. I mean, I, I think Princeton very much has this idea of itself as a global publisher. So it's really trying to get in um, scholarship out of, you know, from around Europe I think those are the things that are important to them. And I think also we are sometimes seen as a place of experimentation. There's lots of things that you can do in this office because we're small that we can then feed, we can sort of feed back into into the main office. So we're often quite pioneering um, with some of the ways that we're working and, and um, breaking down the sort of silos between teams. And we've often fed back ideas into the main office. So I think that's something that we can do quite well. Because when organisations get to a certain size, it becomes difficult, doesn't it, sometimes for that kind of experiment to translate. But but Princeton is maybe, maybe it's the right size. Is it, do you feel it's kind of that, I guess there's no such thing as the ideal size of university press, but it's neither gigantic nor nor tiny so maybe it gives you flexibility but size yes I think it does it gives us flexibility but I think what we've learned is that uh, we drip feed the idea back in until they think it's theirs Um, I think that's something that's very very uh, important that we've learned Uh, I think it depends also on different teams who are perhaps more receptive to to to, um, our our ideas than than others but um, yeah, I think generally we try and sort of slowly drip feed ideas into into people. Um, but yeah, Princeton is small, both sides of the Atlantic, and I think that does allow for a certain amount of, of change. So when you meet someone at a party and you tell them where you work and they say, oh, what kind of books do you do? What, what, what books might I have heard of? And they're not a professional economist. Say, what, what sort of things do you pluck out to sort of say, oh, we publish? Or how do you give someone a a, a very kind of, crisp definition of what kind of publisher you work for? Um, Well, I often will try and point, it depends a bit on the person, but I'll often point to the natural history list because that's something that is is a little bit more accessible and people might have have come across. Sometimes I will mention some of the economists because some of the Nobel Prize winners people might just have heard of. 
and also I'll pick out some of the some of the literature books. So, for example, we've just had the the Michael Rosen Workers Tale. So most people have come across Michael Rosen, and they're quite surprised that uh, we've done someone like that or Martin Rees. We're very excited about the new book coming by Jim Al-Khalili, which comes out next year. So I'm rather hoping um, a few people will have heard of him. So there, there are one or two authors that one can that one can pick out. It's probably hard for you to say after 14 years if there's a particular book. It's probably invidious even to ask you if there's a particular book that you you cherish or a special meaning. But I'm going to ask you in any case if if you can pick out a title that you think either represents what you think about Princeton or one that's dear to your heart or even has an anecdote attached? Well, I think probably, I was thinking about this, I think probably one of my favourites was The House of Government by Yuri Sleskin, which we published, gosh, I think it may be two years ago now, it's just come out in paperback. Yuri was great fun to work with and he came over and we did we did a trip together and we went to Blenheim and I drove him around and uh, we we discovered uh, that we both grew up in the glam rock era so we spent a happy car journey going to Hay on Y discussing seventies glam rock bands and who we'd preferred and everything else and he'd grown up in Russia and I was amazed. Um, and obviously, well, in the Soviet Union, as it was, and uh, I was absolutely amazed that he was, you know, had still heard of some of the people that I was talking about and how much had actually got in in uh, sort of under the radar. Um, but this, this, uh, the House of Government, which is really looking at um, sort of the, the Stalinist era and the people who lived in this sort of um, big, where, where all the bureaucrats lived, basically, until then they all, one by one, were killed in the in the Great Terror. But it was a fascinating it was a fascinating book, and he was uh, he was great fun to work with. I was talking to Caroline Priday, Global Promotions Director of Princeton University Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than fifty others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.